Shalom everyone. This is Ashira Yosefa in Jerusalem. Today we will explore what it means to know God. What are the guidelines established in the Torah for the nations to approach and to know the Creator of the universe? This is the second class in our series for the month of June, entitled Learning from Noah and Following Abraham. I recently read a teaching by Rebetzin Sephora Heller on the month of Sivan. She brought down some interesting observations of the Maharal of Prague concerning the nature of truth. I would like to share these with you because the reason each of you are listening to this class is because you've hearkened to an inner voice within you, undoubtedly quickened by the Creator Himself, that has prompted you to question what you have accepted in the past and to seek truth about God and His will for mankind. Rabbi Yehuda Lov Ben Batsalo better known as the Maharal of Prague, lived over 400 years ago, but his writings are highly regarded in contemporary Torah thought. He was a brilliant mathematician and Kabbalist. Rebetzin Heller wrote that the Maharal defines truth as the entire picture. It includes past, present, and future. It includes internal reality and its external counterpoint. It is a synthesis of the whole, harmony. If something is true at all, it must be true spiritually, physically, mathematically, and philosophically. If an idea works on one level, but doesn't work on any of the other levels, it is not true in the purest sense of the word. This definition of the Maharal is an interesting test to apply to our religious beliefs. Does what we've been taught stand the test spiritually? For example, does it correspond with what Torah reveals about Hashem and His ways? Does it make sense physically, according to the laws of creation and nature? Is it mathematically logical and correct? Is it philosophically healthy and sound? Rebetzin Heller continues in her article with the following observations. We humans are mortal which pretty well cuts us off from any foolproof vision of the future. Our access to anything that took place before we were born is colored by other people's interpretations of the past. Add a healthy scoop of emotional subjectivity, even to our observations of the present, and it seems that our search for truth is doomed. Transcendent truth, by definition, comes from a place above time and space. The Maharal regards transcendent truth as the only real truth. The only time we had access to it was at Mount Sinai when we heard the voice of God. The challenge for us then, in light of Rebetz and Heller's drasha on the Maharal's definition of truth, is to determine how we attain unto transcendent truth and how we live with it. There is an external reality to all that we encounter and experience. But more importantly, there is the inner transcendent reality that is the purest sense of truth. We need to connect to that inner essence. Rebison Keller wrote that this requires a commitment to go beyond the immediate, the vivid, and the seemingly real, and to get to the transcendent, inclusive picture that is the essence of truth. This is not always an easy task especially in today's confusing world. In Tehillim 119, verse 160, David HaMelech wrote, Truth is the essence of your word. Your just rules are eternal. Earlier in the same psalm, he also wrote, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. Verse 105. This is the transcendent truth we seek. A truth that can be proven spiritually, physically, mathematically, and philosophically over and over again. A truth that defines how we approach God and how we relate to God, man, and creation. A truth that not only stands up to examination, but invites it. I would like to preface my comments today on knowing God with some observations about how God, Torah, and man are meant to relate to each other. The world was created through Torah. Therefore, Torah holds the keys to the world. Rabbi David Aaron, 
dean of the Israelite Institute here in Jerusalem, also made some interesting comments in a recent article, one he entitled The Mission of Torah. He wrote, and listen carefully, Most people think that the theme of Torah is about believing in God. That's only half the story. Torah is also about believing in yourself. To accept Torah, you must have a tremendous amount of self-esteem. You must believe that you are worthy to be God's agent on earth. You were sent here to fulfill a sacred mission. Properly taught and understood, Torah teaches us how to hold ourselves in self-esteem as being created in the image of God in order that we might reveal his presence in this world while at the same time also maintaining a proper spirit of humility. A good word picture to describe anav, which is the Hebrew word for humility, is that of a vessel receiving a substance. If the vessel is a disposable plastic or paper cup, for example, it might receive a full measure of liquid, but if something happens and it is squeezed or crushed, the liquid splashes all over and the cup itself usually breaks and becomes useless. This is the wrong type of vessel. The vessel that we need is a vessel that can receive the substance being poured into it, contain it when necessary, allow it to overflow when appropriate, and also expand to receive more when the time is appropriate and the increased substance is available. This is the type of vessel we need to become to receive the kavod, the glory of God, that he bestows to creation. The Torah states that our souls are breathed into us by God, that a spark of the divine abides within us. We have been created, Salam Elohim, in the image of God. We begin our lives with pure souls and we are given Behra, free choice, the ability to weigh the merits of any situation and choose good over bad. Mind you, we need to be taught what is good and what is bad. This is one of the purposes of the Torah. Hashem has given us a basic intuition in these matters, but the intuition needs the safe and healthy parameters that Torah provides for it. The Torah teaches that we have an inclination towards good, the Yetzer HaTov, and an inclination towards evil, the Yetzer Hara. Throughout our life, we have the responsibility to use our power of choice to subdue and discipline our inclination towards evil and strengthen our inclination towards what we know to be good. Understandably, it is difficult to develop the balance of self-esteem and humility necessary to accept Torah if one has been taught that they have been born with a soul that is not pure. But then that is not what the Torah teaches. Hashem chose to create man, each and every one of us. God does not make mistakes. We are important to God, and he gives us the respect and the freedom to choose to be in relationship with him. As with each of the biblical greats, we need to realize for ourselves the unique qualifications God built into each one of us so that we can embrace his Torah, come to know God as much as finite humans can in this present world, and learn to live in harmony with his word and his world. So what does it mean to know God? God is not finite. He is not a human being. He cannot be seen. We cannot reach out and touch him. And yet he's omnipresent. There is no place that he is not. How does a finite human being know that which is truly, by definition, unknowable? Derek Hashem, The Way of God, was written by Moshe Chaim Musato, the Ramchal, during the early half of the 18th century. The Ramchal was born in Italy in 1707. He died of plague in Amsterdam in 1746 at the young age of 39. He was recognized as a child prodigy, knew the entire Talmud by heart at the age of 14, and published his first book at the age of 17. He was also a master of Kabbalah. Historical evidence indicates that the Ramchal wrote more than 40 books and pamphlets between 1730 and 1735, 
the period in which it is believed that Derek Hashem may have been written. Although it is believed that this book was written towards the end of that period because of the fullness in which Luzato developed his concepts. Derek Hashem is a classic work, excellent for B'nai Noah, which begins with the most basic concepts regarding the existence of God and his purpose in creation. This makes it a perfect source for our topic today, and I will bring down much from the Ramchal's writings over the next hour, Zrat Hashem. The basic upon which one begins to know God is to believe and know that there exists a first being, without beginning or end, who brought all things into existence and continues to sustain them all. This being is God. This is the place which Abraham arrived at through the natural human process of observation and reasoning, using his God-given intellect to question and weigh evidence. The Ramchal tells us that it is necessary to know that God's true nature cannot be understood at all by any being other than himself. The only thing that we know about him is that he is perfect in every possible way and devoid of every conceivable deficiency. These things are known by tradition from the patriarchs and the prophets. With the revelation at Sinai, all Israel perceived them and gained a clear grasp of their nature. They then taught them to their children, generation after generation until this very day. These concepts can also be logically verified by demonstrable proofs. The veracity can be demonstrated from what we observe in nature and its phenomena. Through such scientific disciplines as physics and astronomy, certain basic principles can be derived, and on the basis of these, clear evidence for these concepts deduced. It is necessary to know that God's existence is imperative. It is absolutely impossible that he should cease to exist. It is necessary to know that God's existence does not depend on anything else at all. It is likewise necessary to know that God is absolutely simple, having no parts to him. At the same time, all types of perfection are present in him, contained in his being, without being separate parts of it. The Ramchal gives a practical, practical example to illustrate this latter concept of the all-inclusive, indivisible oneness of God. The example he offers for comparison is that of the human mind. The human mind is like an amazing factory. It has and oversees many diverse and different functions. Each of these functions has a particular area or, area or domain within the brain. Yet the brain is a single organ without any of the unique areas for memory, desire, reasoning, motor function, etc., impinging on the other. The human mind has many structures within one single entity. However, the Ramchal makes the observation that the human mind is not simple in the context to which he refers to God as being simple. He notes, God, however, does not require a separate domain for each of these powers. In fact, he does possess these powers in which man are different one from another. For God, we can say, does desire, and is wise, and capable, and is perfect in every conceivable way. On the other hand, God is actually one. These phenomena being present in him without being separate parts of him, their being included in him by virtue of his perfection. All types of perfection exist in God not as phenomena which are separable from its absolute oneness, and it is impossible that God does not possess every perfection. So it's a challenge for our human minds to grasp these transcendent realities. This is because our intellect and imagination are only capable of grasping things bound by the natural limitations that God himself built into creation. Our senses cannot detect or interpret phenomena that are outside the realm of these limitations and natural laws. The Ramchal expresses it this way. We are incapable of conceiving these different qualities as a simple, single essence, since, among created things, they are different, separate concepts. Let me just repeat that. 
We are incapable of conceiving these different qualities as a simple single essence since, among created things, they are different separate concepts. So while we can discern characteristics of the Creator by studying His creation, we really cannot say that the nature and essence of the Creator and the creation are one and the same. Creation is finite. God is infinite. It's a bit like looking through a glass, though darkly. Or perhaps more accurately, it's like trying to peer through many successive veils. The process of veiling, or constrictions, is the process identified by Kabbalah as the means in which the infinite creator constricted and contracted his essence down into a manageable level of revelation that we, as finite beings, could relate to and not be consumed by his power in the process. Another example would be that of raw energy coming from the initial source of a hydro station. It goes through many levels of conversion before it is at a level that an electrical appliance can make use of the energy. We all know what can happen if there's a sudden power surge. Goodbye appliance. Rabbis Klorfian and Rogalski, in their book The Path of the Righteous Gentile, use a similar analogy where they state, quote, God directs the planet with a power that has neither limit nor end, with a power that is uninterrupted, so that the planet always revolves. And it is impossible for something to revolve without there being a force to cause it to revolve. And he, blessed be he, causes it to revolve without a hand and without a body, end quote. There is a beautiful description of how this divine power and sustenance is supplied to the earth in the book Mishkane Elion, The Secrets of the Future Temple, which was also written by the Ramchal, as translated by Rabbi Abraham Greenbaum. Before I begin, bear in mind that there is a heavenly temple as well as a physical temple. The physical temple is meant to be a reflection of the heavenly one. Even when the physical temple is non-existent, the heavenly temple abides and performs its function in the role of all creation. Now let me attempt to explain to you a Hebrew word that really has no English equivalent. Shefa. Shefa in modern Hebrew means plenty or abundance. The root of the word has the connotation of influence, especially a positive, beneficial influence that one person or object has on another. In Biblical Hebrew, and in Kabbalistic terms, Shefa refers to the spiritual influences which emanate from the higher levels of creation in order to sustain the lower and help bring them to their destiny. The sustenance sent to sustain and influence all the different levels is Shefa. Central to Mishkane Elion is the idea that it is from the temple that the Shefa of blessing and sustenance is drawn down to all the worlds in positive, beneficial ways. This is from the temple, in the spiritual temple on high. The temple service below is what actually elicits the flow of Shefa and causes it to come down to all the various levels of creation according to their respective needs. In his book, Mishke Elion, the Ramchal describes how the tree of life, the array of the ten sefirot, is the heavenly infrastructure of divine channels through which the Shefa is transmitted from on high. These channels function like the roots of a tree that provide life-giving sap to the trunk and the roots below. But in the case of the tree of life, the roots of the manifest phenomenon in this world actually lie on planes that are above this world. In order for all the branches of creation to live and flourish, they must receive vitality from the very roots of the tree of life. Each branch receives its vitality through particular channels and pathways through which the vital sap reaches it. The branches must thus be connected with the roots in order to receive their vitality. Central to all the teachings in Mishkane Elion is the idea that the temple is the place where all the different branches of creation reconnect with their roots through the temple service. It is through this connection and joining of the branches to their roots that Shefa spreads to all the worlds. Speaking of the point in the heavenly metaspace that is the source of all the worlds, the Ramchal writes, 
quote, There is a special place where all these roots come together. In that place is the root of all things. In that place are the roots of the earth and all it contains, the heavens, the heavens of the heavens, and all their hosts without exception. In the place where all these roots come together, in the middle, there is a single stone. This stone is most precious. It possesses every kind of beauty and charm. It is called the foundation stone, the Evan Shetia. There is also a corresponding stone in this world, the lower world, in the place of the Holy of Holies. Stretching out in all directions from and around this stone are channels and pathways leading to all things. At their start, these channels are great highways governing and regulating all the different orders and species of created beings, all of which have a deep inner knowledge of the root path. From here, they all receive their share of the constant sustenance given to them by the king. Branching off from these highways are countless smaller pathways containing the individual roots of every single being in creation, from the biggest to the smallest. Each one has its own unique pathway. End of quote. With such an amazingly complex, yet totally integrated system of divine providence, what an unspeakable disservice mankind does when man attempts to reduce the infinite creator and God into something so finite and confined as a human form. To quote Rabbis Chlorophene and Rogalski, If it should ever occur to you that there is another deity besides him, it is a rejection of the very source on which everything depends. The Ramhal in Der Hashem notes that it must be impossible that this being cease to exist or have any deficiency. This being must furthermore be divorced from all addition, structure, relationship, comparison, or any other quality that exists in created beings. Finally, this being must be the true cause of everything that exists and happens. Unless all this is true, the existence and continuance of things as we know them would be utterly impossible. Rabbis Chlorphene and Rogalski expressed the same foundational principle to knowing God. If all the creatures in creation should cease to exist, he alone would still exist, and in no way would he be nullified because of their nullification. For every creation needs him, but he, blessed be he, does not need any of them or all of them, and his truth is not like the truth of any one of them. Their existence is not imperative because it depends on his existence. Therefore, their existence is relative, but the first existence is uncaused. His existence is absolute. Of him the prophet says, The Lord God is truth. Jeremiah 10.10 He alone is truth, and there is no other truth like unto his truth. And of him the Torah says, there is nothing else besides him. Deuteronomy 4.35 So what have we established thus far? That God reveals himself through creation in finite measures that humans can comprehend, but that these revelations are not parallel or equal to the vastness that is truly the Creator. That God's Shefa and Providence flow through unseen channels to sustain every creation in all the worlds to the exact degree and quantity necessary for each. That God might be compared to a massive power grid upon which all the worlds are completely dependent, function as independent worlds in their own right of creation, but are nonetheless totally subsumed into the essence of the fullness of the one God. Even still, all of these comparisons are merely that. Attempts to define in human reasoning that which defies human reason and understanding. The Ramahal states that there are six basic principles involved in our understanding of God. They are as follows. The fact of his existence, his perfection, the necessity of his existence, 
his absolute independence, his simplicity, his unity. What do we need to know about God's unity? Rabbis Klorfin and Rogalski state it clearly and simply. This God is one. He is not two or more than two. And there is no single existence that is unique and singular like his existence. He is not in a category that includes others of his species. And he is not divided into portions or sections as is a body. But his is a oneness and a uniqueness that has no equal in the universe. They then go on to elaborate this concept of oneness. If there were many gods, they would perforce have bodies, because there is no way to differentiate one being from another except by bodily or material differences. And if the Creator had a body or any material form, He would have both a limit and an end, because it is not possible for there to be a body that has no termination point, and everything pertaining to a body also has a termination point. But because of our God, blessed be his name, whose power is endless and uninterrupted, the planet revolves perpetually, for his power is not a bodily power. And because he has no body, there are no accidents or occurrences of the body that happen to him, which might divide or separate him from another being. Therefore it is impossible for him to be anything but one. Isn't simple, straightforward logic wonderful? Let me just read one of those sentences again. And if the Creator had a body or any material form, He would have both a limit and an end, because it is not possible for there to be a body that has no termination point, and everything pertaining to a body also has a termination point. We can all agree that the creator of the universe is infinite. The existence of two or more infinities of equal or lesser powers means that there have to be limits which define their infiniteness. This is simply impossible. Infinity is one and all-inclusive and supremely indivisible into aspects, extremities, or forms. This means no pantheons, no trinities, no dualities. 1. Deuteronomy 4 verse 39 tells us that Hashem, He is God in heaven above and on the earth below, there is no other. From this we learn that He is in both places at the same time. A body which is finite by nature cannot be in two places at once. In Deuteronomy 4.15, Moshe warns the children of Israel, For your own sake, therefore, be most careful since you saw no shape when Hashem your God spoke to you at Horeb out of the fire. The many descriptive phrases in Torah and Tanakh which attribute sight, a hand, a finger, feet, a back, etc. to God, or which imply that he descended or stood or sits, are all literary expressions called anthropomorphisms, which attribute human attributes to that which is not human, in order to communicate qualities that humans can identify with, such as knowing, strength, taking action, giving, resisting, caring, etc. In other words, God and the Hebrew scribes of old were trying to convey divine concepts in a manner in which even a child could relate to them. They were not describing divinity cloaked in a finite reality. As we have seen, one cannot limit that which is limitless. We have also determined that if Hashem were to withdraw His presence, all existence as we know it would cease to exist. We see this each time a person dies. It is the divine breath within us that animates us. Our bodies are merely carrying cases. When time comes that God determines to recall that divine spark, only the carrying case remains, and left to natural process, it soon decomposes. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Genesis 3.19 God created the world out of nothing. The Torah tells us that God spoke and creation was formed. Simply put, God's speech, his utterance, 
is the sole life force in creation. That is why Torah is our light. It is God's utterance, the blueprint of all creation. Torah sustains the universe. When we speak, words and breath leave our mouths. Sometimes our words take on a life of their own. Speech can make and speech can break. It is powerful and the Torah warns us to guard our tongues and use our speech wisely. Under Torah, to harm someone's reputation through Lashon Hara, evil speech, gossip, is considered to be the same as having murdered them. If Hashem were to withdraw his breath, to withdraw the ten utterances that brought forth the world, all would cease to exist because independent of Hashem, creation has no existence, even though things appear to us to have a separate existence and vitality. Rabbis Klorfin and Rogalski explain that the reason that every creative being appears to possess an independent self-existence is that we do not grasp or see with our physical eyes the power of God and the breath of his mouth that is within creation. If permission were granted to the eye to see the life force and the spirituality that flow from God to every created thing, then we would no longer see the physicality of material existence. What they are saying is that creation is nullified to its source. If we could see God and the spiritual realms within our present finite state, our physicality would cease to exist. This is what God meant when he responded to Moshe's request to see his glory. God replied, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you the name Yudke Vavke, and the grace that I grant, and the compassion that I show. But you cannot see my face, for man may not see me and live. Exodus 33, verses 19 to 20. What God was telling Moshe is that man, while his soul is attached to a physical body, lacks the level and power of intellect necessary to behold the spiritual realm and cannot see this truth clearly. Once our soul, which is divine in origin, from the very breath of God, returns to its source, the realm of our understanding will change. For the present, creation displays God's goodness to us, his Torah proclaims his name to us, and his providence and intervention in our daily lives proclaims his grace and compassion. In the Ramchal, in Derech Hashem, the Ramchal in Derech Hashem, comments that God's purpose in creation was to bestow of his good to another. Since God desired to bestow good, a partial good would not be sufficient. The good that he bestows would have to be the ultimate good that his handiwork would accept. His wisdom therefore decreed that the nature of this true benefaction be giving his created things the opportunity to attach themselves to him to the greatest degree possible for them. The purpose of all that was created was to bring into existence a creature who could derive pleasure from God's own good in a way that would be possible for it. As you might imagine, that creature is man, created Salem Elohim in the image of God. But a gift received is not usually appreciated as much as a treasure that has been earned. And so it was God's wisdom that we be created with the hara free choice, and that we have the option whether or not, when and how, we seek to attach ourselves to God to take advantage of the goodness available to us. Creation was therefore brought into being with elements of both perfection and deficiency, a perfectly imperfect world, a world that is presently six-sevenths of a whole, but will at some future time become the perfect seven that is represented by Shabbat. Man was created with equal access to both the elements of perfection in the world and the elements of deficiency. Our task, our tikkun, is to acquire perfection and avoid deficiency. If we strive to pursue perfection to the extent that it is possible in this finite world, we will increase our resemblance to our Maker, our Salam al-Kim. 
In response to this arousal from below, as it is called in Kabbalistic terms, this seeking to draw near on the part of man, God responds by helping us and drawing us close to him to discover and enjoy the pleasure of his goodness. This is called cleaving to God. The more we cleave, the more our lives reveal God upon this earth, and the more we know God. God is the root and the source. We have the choice to become fruit-bearing branches by cleaving to and drawing sustenance from our source, or we can choose to define our own existence, making up our own rules of the game, as it were, and end up as dry and broken twigs. Basically, all man-made religions are simply man's attempts to make up their own rules of the game. The Ramhal helps us to understand how good and bad coexist in God's world, given that Isaiah tells us that God has created both good and evil. If God is ultimate perfection and goodness, where does evil fit in? Quoting from the Ramhal, he writes, If we understand that God alone is the true perfection, it follows that in nature and in creation, every fault is merely the absence of his good and the concealment of his presence. That is, closeness to God and illumination of his presence is the root and cause of every perfection that exists, while concealment of his presence is the root and cause of every fault, the degree of deficiency depending on the degree of concealment." End of quote. When we choose to go against the protective guidelines and laws that God has revealed through his Torah, we conceal his presence, and depending on the nature and degree of the transgression, evil is the result. When we guard his commandments, God is revealed, and goodness and perfection are the result. According to the Ram Hall, all other created things, whether above or below man, only exist for his sake, man's sake, to complete his environment through their various different qualities appropriate for each of them. The world as we know it is a universal laboratory of sorts, in which man has all the elements necessary to perfect his nature and this perfectly imperfect creation, or, alternatively, destroy both. It was necessary for man to be given free will in order to complete God's purpose that his goodness be freely given to the ultimate level desired and acceptable to this singular creature that he created with the capacity to cleave to God. If God had compelled us to cleave to him, he would be responsible for our choices. Our cleaving unto him would be his act. It's a bit like a forced marriage or hypnotizing the bride in order to ensure that the marriage goes through. A bit of an insult to the one creature, one creature created Selam Elohim, wouldn't you say? So if man was bestowed with a unique power, that of choice, we find ourselves balanced between good and evil, and able to choose knowingly and willingly which side we will favor. And by our choices, we mold the nature of our souls and we either cleave to God or push him away. We are born with a pure spiritual soul and an unenlightened physical body. The soul naturally inclines towards its source, namely God. The body inclines towards its source, namely dust, the material and the mundane. Given that the two come as a single unit in this world, when they are elevated or debased by our choices and actions, one will affect the other. In other words, if our soul prevails in its pursuit of God, it will elevate the body. If we allow our bodies to prevail and pursue only the material and mundane, we will debase our souls and distance ourselves from Hashem. In order to rectify this distance that we have placed between ourselves and God, we must do tshuva. We must subjugate our physicality to our soul and intellect and repent. When we make a move towards Hashem, we will find that he truly is everywhere. So what is man's obligation to God? According to the Ramhal, man was created for the sole purpose of cleaving to God. If he chooses to fulfill the purpose for which he was created. 
The prophet Micha expressed man's obligation in easily understood terms. He has told you, O man, what is good and what Hashem requires of you, only to do justice and to love goodness and to walk modestly with your God. Micah 6, verse 8. Even a casual glance at the seven universal laws will show that they are the foundation for all men to fulfill this obligation to God. How much an individual chooses to press inward and onward in their closeness to God is between themselves and God. But the minimum standard has just been defined for us. From here, one should strive to love and fear God, as the Torah instructs us to do repeatedly. The Hofetz Chaim, in his book, The Concise Book of Mitzvot, tells us how we grow to love God. Quote, this is the way toward love for him. When we will meditate on his activities until we comprehend him to the extent of our ability, the heart will become inflamed with a love for him. This is the love that is essential for us. So let a person set his entire thought on affection for the blessed God. A man cannot love the Holy One, blessed is he, except through knowledge, by comprehending him. Through this knowledge, the affection comes. If it, the knowledge, is little, then a little love. If it is much, then much. Therefore, a person needs to set himself solely to understand and grow wise through the fields of wisdom and comprehension that convey the glory of his Maker, to the extent of the ability that a person has to understand and to realize." End quote. Reflecting on the Hofetz Chaim statements really gives one reason to wonder at the rationale behind the prohibition on reading the Bible that characterized the Dark Ages and sadly lingered in its stifling legacy until the 1960s in some religious denominations, wherein their congregations were discouraged from owning or reading a Bible and told that they did not have the ability to interpret it on their own which is so completely contrary to every precept of Torah. But what if a person does not have access to teachers and books? This too is a purpose of creation. When we stop and take time to really consider the magnitude of creation, the diversity of the species, the intricate artistry of flowers and plants, the majesty of the skies, the power of rain, wind, lightning and thunder, the flawless rhythm of sunrise and sunset, the internal programming that motivates animals, the amazing distances that birds travel unerringly in their migratory patterns. How can we not realize that God exists and that nothing exists outside of him? His manifest wisdom is unequaled on earth. It has occupied scientists, philosophers, and astronomers for centuries and has provided endless inspiration for artists and authors. If one takes the time to seriously reflect on the glory of God proclaimed daily by creation, then the normal responses should be awe, praise, fear of God, and love of God. As David Hanelech wrote in Tehillim 8, chapter, verses 4 and 5, When I behold your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and stars that you set in place. What is man that you have been mindful of him? Mortal man that you have taken note of him. And yet we know that that verse goes on to say, and yet you have created him a little less than the Elohim, a little less than God. Not only has God taken note of man, he purposefully made man the reason for creation that he should become its master. What should be our response? Once we pick ourselves up off the ground where we've been laying prostrate in fear and trembling at how poorly we've been fulfilling our obligation, how disrespectful we've been of the good offered to us. Perhaps Shlomo HaMelech can answer this best for us in closing. Shlomo HaMelech was the wisest man in the world and he set himself to explore, experience, and discover all things, many of which were unwise choices 
as the Tanakh tells us. If there's one thing that the Tanakh is unsparing in, is that it gives us both the good and the bad in terms of the people whose lives are preserved within it. And this comes to tell us that we are all alike, that we all are born with this pure soul, but struggle with our inclination to good and our inclination to evil. Each one of us have had the same process, the same obligation throughout our lives. The key is how we subdue the inclination to evil and how we elevate and strengthen that inclination to, to good and in so doing come to greater resemble our maker. Shlomo HaMelech, however, at the end of all his explorations, which he summed up in the book of Ecclesiastes, he summed up the purpose of life in the following words. The sum of the matter, when all is said and done, revere God and observe his commandments. For this applies to all mankind, that God will call every creature to account for all their conduct, be it good or bad. Ecclesiastes 12, verse 13. In the Hasidic writings, we learn that when the day comes that we do stand before the Creator and Judge of the universe, it will not be our sins that cause us shame. It will be when God reveals to us what we could have been, the potential He created within each one of us, and how we wasted it. Something to think about. That's the end of the class material for today. Next Thursday's class will be on the topic Returning to God, Free Will, Repentance, and Divine Providence. Once again, it's a short outline, but I guarantee you it will cover a lot of material. Are there any questions that anyone would like to put up on the board? Okay, we've got some questions coming. I should also mention, ah, okay, here we go. Azriella writes in from France. I would like to know how we can know what God wants us to be. Good question, Azriella. Good question. It's interesting in that the process of things we go through in life, uh, the good and the bad, the ups and the downs, are the molding process. Um, in, in Tanakh, in the book of Jeremiah, also in the book of Isaiah, there's a couple of places where God describes himself as a potter and that we're the vessel, we're the clay in his hands. And life, as it happens to it, to us, are like the hands of God molding us. The Torah tells us what he wants of us, tells us what he expects of us. He expects us to keep his commandments. As we keep his commandments, then we connect to him. The word mitzvah, the word for commandment, actually at its root means to connect. So when we keep the commandments, and for B'nai Na'ak, it's starting with the seven universal laws, which as we've discussed in many classes before, open up to many more. As Rob Schwartz wrote in his, his book, Light Unto the Nations, there's a whole area of uh, ethical, social, moral, uh, justice commandments that are there that are all part and parcel of the commandments that are, are open and available and should be observed by B'nai Na'ak. But as we keep these commandments, then we come to know God more because the commandments teach us who he is. They also teach us about ourselves. And so in keeping, it's like Shlomo HaMelech wrote. He said, you know, the sum of the whole matter is revere God and observe his commandments. As we do that, the process of our life, God will ensure that we know what he wants us to be. Keep the commandments, pray. Prayer and study are the two most important things. As we keep his commandments, we study his Torah, as we pray. God, did the, the psalmist, King David wrote that God delights in giving us the desires of our heart. In fact, I think it's in Psalm 20 
there's a phrase where it says that he will, you know, may he give you the desires of your heart. And if we desire his will, we can be certain that he will reveal that will to us through the people that he brings into our life, through the circumstances that happen. The key to make that road as smooth as possible is to keep his commandments. But that doesn't mean, even in keeping them, it doesn't mean that we're going to escape the hard times. Sometimes, and we'll discuss this in the later class about the descent before an ascent, but I had a, a very, very holy rabbi in, in Sfat recently. Uh, I was going through a very rough period between Purim and, uh, and during Lagba Omer, so the Purim through Shavuot was a time when God was really doing a lot of correction in my life, um, showing me a lot of things, and I didn't know what was—I really didn't know what was happening. I was trying so hard. I was being very faithful and diligent, yet all these bad things were happening. And what Rav Kenning said to me was that sometimes we're not ready yet for what God has in front of us. We don't know what that is. Only God does. So sometimes he kind of has to knock us off our feet, knock us off the path for a bit, throw us off balance, so that we can, uh, he can mold us, he can prepare us what's for, for what's coming next. So it's not just a smooth road that's a good thing. We have to learn to be thankful for the times that our life is a difficult and, and bumpy road. Now, Cornelius, did you have a question? Uh, yes, Cornelius, this class will actually be broadcast again this evening at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, so you'll be able to get it then. Uh, as well, uh, probably within an hour or so, it will be up on the Shuva website. Uh, it will certainly be there by tomorrow, but it, it most likely will be there by tonight. So you can listen to the parts that you missed uh, from the Shuba website or by coming back into the NOAA chat room this evening. Any more questions for today? I am just as a heads up, um, not next week, but the week um, of the 29th. We will be um, rescheduling the class, I think probably for Tuesday at 11 a.m. EST. Uh, because uh, my colleague in Shuvu and our webmaster is getting married that day. And in Judaism, it is a mitzvah to rejoice with the, to make the bride and the groom happy, the Hatan and Kala. And so you can be certain that uh, I will be at the Chupa. And so we will reschedule the class. So two weeks from now, the class will be on Tuesday at 11 a.m. EST which is, I believe, the 6 p.m., yeah, 6 p.m. from Israel. And Azriella, I think it's probably 5 in France. Okay, uh, Azriella, another question. You spoke about loving God by knowing Him, but those people who never heard about the God of Israel, how are they considered? Well, the Tanakh tells us, I mean, uh, let's think back to the, the old days. Abraham... Uh, discovered God through using the intellect that God gave him. All the world around him, even though the Sheba Mitzvot had been revealed to Noah, the people weren't following them. And all the world around Abraham were worshipping the heavens, plants, Nimrod, uh, you name it, they worshipped it. But Abraham looked around. It, it's like the Chofet Haim said, how do we get to love God? We, we observe his creation. And as we, if we really stop and look, we have to remember that the one thing that God wants more than anything is that all men should know him. And he promises that the day is coming when all the nations shall know God, when all men shall acknowledge that he is the one God. So we worry about how might these people come to know God. The reality is that it's God's responsibility. <laughs> they have to respond. God will ensure that each and every person has the opportunity over and over and again to realize, to be told, to discover that the God of Israel exists. Then we have the choice. We decide how do we respond to that. Are we, will we accept it? Will we set aside our own um, designer religions and acknowledge that he is the creator and he's established guidelines that will enable us to, to know him and live 
in harmony with his creation and one another. So, you know, it's it's not as hard as we think. It's God God will look after that. Azriella again. So this feeling that we have inside to find the truth is a divine gift, or does it come from us? Azriella, that feeling that you have inside you, that that magnet, that thirst for spiritual things that will not let you stop, that is a divine gift. That is the divine spark that was breathed into you. That is the creator of the universe quickening you. The beautiful thing is that your, your heart and your mind heard that voice and you responded to it. So you can look at it as having um, a very personal touch of the creator of the universe actively at work within you, which is a rather nice thing to think about. Okay, any further questions? And then we'll say shalom for today. I think we have another question coming up from Azriella. Okay, I say that because some people say that others have not the choice. Azriella, in reading the Tanakh, it is very clear that from the beginning of, the, of creation, that all mankind has had the choice and that God is continually working despite mankind's best efforts to uh, resist him he's continually working to reveal himself to all mankind we know that he is perfect in every way that he is the ultimate in justice and compassion and that his judgment takes into account the heart and the, man, the, heart and the mind of man all of the influences that have come into man's life, all of the opportunities and disadvantages. So we can rest uh, comfortably in knowing that when God promises that all men shall know that he is the God and creator of the universe, that that, uh, that that will happen and that absolute justice will be meted out in the end. Cornelius is asking, does the idea that others have not the choice come from the New Testament? Um, good question. I don't know specifically uh, if or where it is mentioned there. Certainly the idea that some have not the choice, uh, I believe, is a teaching of Christianity. It's part of the uh, modus operandus for their, uh, their mission to take the gospel to the ends of the earth uh, that, that all men should know. Uh, perhaps the fact is that uh, not all mankind knows their particular doctrine, but I can assure you that all mankind will have a chance, uh, one way or another, to acknowledge the one true God of the universe. Azraelis says, maybe they say that God predestined those who must be saved. Okay, that question of predestination. We just finished saying that God created all mankind and that all mankind are important to him. God does not make mistakes. Why would he create someone if they did not have a purpose? We have a choice, you know, how, how our existence plays out. We have a choice whether or not we're in relationship to God or whether or not we have good relationships with one another. But to say that the God willfully created man uh, and then said some get in and some don't is one of the teachings of Christianity that has absolutely no basis in the Torah. The reason that God actually uh, called out, formed, created, set aside the nation of Israel and gave them the Torah is because the Midrashim tell us that the Torah was offered to every nation of the world. But the other nations, uh, they didn't accept it. They wouldn't accept it. So God called Israel out forced them. It says that, you know, that, that the mountain, <laughs> Mount Sinai, I mean, there was so much supernatural phenomenon that was going on on that day that the Torah was revealed, that the mountain actually hovered over them. I mean, they had already said, we will, we will do, you know, we, will, we will hear and we will do, when Moshe first told them that God was going to reveal his Torah to them. And they'd already said, you know, fine, you know, we will hear and we will do. But then when it was actually revealed, it was a very frightening, frightening experience. I mean, past the second utterance, past the, the second of the ten utterances, 
uh, you know, the people said, we don't want to hear any more. We can't bear it. Moshe, you, you know, you go and, and listen to what Hashem has to say and you tell us. So, you know, God has gone to such incredible lengths to ensure that his message is taken to the world. That's why Israel's uh, ups and downs are recorded in the Tanakh. That's why Israel's like a canary that the miners send down into, into the mines to see if it's safe. What happens to Israel throughout Israel's whole history, the good times and the bad times, has been the creator of the universe painting a picture through the lives, the collective lives of a nation to show the nations of the world, to show all mankind that there is a God in this world, that there is a creator, and that he, he is the definition of truth. Okay, we're past our uh, allotted time slot, so I will say Shalom Shalom from Jerusalem, and uh, thank you so much for being in the class today. Got a couple. <laughs> okay. Thank you. And uh, Shalom. Bezrat uh, Hashem. We will uh, see you again next week. Goodbye, everyone.